Welcome to The Interview, where we share inspiring career stories and advice from experts and thought leaders on any and all topics, everything from college admissions tips to the latest medical and self-care advice. I'm host Leslie Heaney, and I'm excited to share these compelling stories with you. I hope you'll learn something new and hopefully share a few laughs along the way. Today on the show, I'm so very excited to spend time with college admissions counselor, Nuria Rubert. Nuria was four when her family left Cuba shortly after Castro took power. From there, in Miami, Nuria learned English and went on to graduate valedictorian of her high school class. A graduate of Princeton, Nuria was also an Olympic trials qualifier and NCAA All-American in swimming. Regarded as a real expert in her field, for the past 20 years, Nuria has guided students the changing landscape of college admissions. She empowers her students to channel their passions and strengths to help them land at schools where they can thrive. Nuria also brings a unique perspective to the scholarly athlete applying to college, raising three children who furthered their own academic and athletic careers at Duke, Virginia, and Princeton. She helps her clients and their parents navigate the complex and stressful process of applying to college. I should mention that this episode was recorded remotely, so at moments the sound is a bit spotty, but it doesn't distract, hopefully, from the the conversation. And with that, Nuria Rupert. So, Nuria, the the landscape of applying to colleges um, is so much different today than it was when when I applied. Gosh, I think that's thirty years ago. I, I'm hesitant to say. And uh, from when you applied, in your opinion, sort of how how have you seen um, the process? Uh, and the landscape change over the past 20 or so years? I think two factors have contributed greatly. And one of them is globalization, and the other one is the internet. And it's basically diminished the size of the world. So what's happened is many more kids are applying within the U.S., but even more kids are applying internationally to U.S. schools. And the other thing that's happened, and and this is basically internet driven, is with the advent of the Common App, which has facilitated applications greatly, no longer are you applying to five schools because you have to fill out five paper applications. Some kids are applying to 15 schools. The Common App allows you to apply to 20 schools. So in fact, even if the, the the number of applicants had not gone up, the number of applications have gone up sometimes four times, sometimes three times. But then in addition to that, you have many more applicants. So applications are flooding schools and it's driving down the acceptance rate. Whereas in the 1990s, even the elite schools Stanford, I looked this up because I knew we were going to be speaking. So Stanford's acceptance rate in 1990 was 20%. Harvard's was 23. Penn's was over 40. Now all of these schools are in the single digits. And it's because the denominator has expanded exponentially. But the numerator, which is the number of seats available for that incoming class, has not or not drastically. And so therefore, the numbers have gone down. Another thing that has affected is the publication of U.S. News and World Report. And one of the rankings is the acceptance rate. And sometimes students and parents tend to equate the selectivity of the college, the low acceptance rate, with the worth. And And it isn't, but it's almost a vicious cycle then because it's so hard to get into. So it's, it becomes a goal to try to get into that school and it drives it up even more. So more. And hasn't, I mean, just anecdotally, um, it seems, cause I haven't done the, the research or am as familiar with the data as, as you are obviously, but um, some schools becoming test optional, I think has also increased their number, right. Of applicants. And then, because of that, it also, from a percentage perspective, has increased their selectivity, right? I mean, yeah. Exactly. 
Exactly. Many schools were test optional prior to COVID. They wanted to have a more holistic approach. So it was not COVID that, that started this, but COVID sort of cemented it that kids couldn't take tests. So many schools had to go test optional. If they didn't have a test score, they would take the, the, the student with without having a test. And what it's done is it's opened the door for a lot of students to think, oh, well, I'm only going to be compared on my grades and my grades are really good, right. so I have a shot. And so therefore it encourages in a way for students to apply who would never have applied before because they couldn't get the the high standardized test score for whatever reason. They're not great test takers. They didn't have the opportunity to take it, but it that has driven up the, the number. And of then how would you say, so, I mean, there, there are, it just also, again, anecdotally based on, you know, friends, children, or, you know, what I'm kind of seeing of students that are at um, schools primarily in the Northeast, there seems to be a lot of interest in certain geographic areas um, you know, kids wanting to go to the South, maybe it's because of the weather, you know, or other reasons, but, um, but in, in much more significant numbers than kind of when I was applying where kids were applying primarily to the Northeast and, or, or kind of more all over, um, any trends that you're seeing there or, or what would you attribute that to? And I think again, the internet, the shrinking of our world, that it is no longer an issue to be getting on a plane to go to college when in, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you got in the car and your parents drove you to the college and settled you in. And now everyone travels, everyone moves in much larger circles. And so social media has things much more familiar. And there isn't that fear of going away. That's interesting. I guess in social media, if you see, you know, another kid from your school or from your hometown who's, you know, a four hour plane ride away, but having a great time. And you can actually see it live. You can see their football game or you can see whatever's happening at their school, which you couldn't have visibility into 30 years ago. It would give you sort of more of a, of a a comfort level and kind of exploring um, places that might be a little bit further away. We, this summer went to go look at schools with our daughter, who's a junior, um, in the UK. And it was really fascinating um, going on some of those tours where most of the people that were on the tours were Americans who were, which I do not think was the the case or the trend even 10 years ago. Um, have you seen that too? Kind of an interest in, in colleges in Europe and other locations? Uh, amazingly, right before we are speaking, I, I received a phone call from one of my students at St. Andrews. And he's very happy there. It's not the the right. usual college experience. They are a lot more independent. Uh, they have to all take introductory modules, but he is enjoying it tremendously. Enjoying also the cultural aspects that they're not going to have if you go to the local state school. He's around kids from all over the world. True, many of them are from the UK, but it also gives him access to travel right. everywhere in Europe easily. And so when you think of education as an opportunity to expand your horizons, to, to get everyone different perspectives, studying abroad does that probably more so than anything else. I think it's a logical extension of study abroad programs because schools have always had a semester abroad, a summer abroad, and this is just more of that, except now they're more aware of it. They're more aware that those kind of opportunities exist. And again, I think it's social media that is showing pictures of kids in the UK, in Europe, and saying, hey, this is feasible. What was interesting too on the tours, you know, chatting with some of the other American parents, um, and we would see them, you know, kind of. We were on the same, you know, uh, tour, and they, you know, would say, "Yeah, this is so. It's a great experience for my child to be in a different country, meeting kids from all over. But it's also a third of the cost um, that it is in the U.S. So that to them is, you know." 
the the value proposition of that um, is very high. You know, I think it's, um, you know, in some cases, maybe it's not a third, but it's certainly less less than half. No, I think it's, I think it's less. Yeah. I think it's more than a third. I think, meaning I think it's much cheaper than a third. I think it's a third if you take into consideration housing, which isn't the typical dorms. They usually have to flats. And so the room and board aspect is going to be a little trickier, a little bit more expensive, but the tuition yeah. is yeah. much, much cheaper. So I know this is a, this is a, a very broad question, but you know, in your experience and with helping to, to counsel kids as they're looking to find the right college fit for them, what do you think um, colleges, just generally speaking, are looking for in their applicants? I think Colleges are looking for engaged and engaging students. They want, they want kids to come in and fill their community and fill roles in that community. Their nightmare would be, I would think, a very bright child right. that stays in his dorm. So they want, they want the students to be active participants. They want, they need the students to take over the newspaper, to, t- to be part of the orchestra, to be part of the theater, to be in, in, in sports teams, because otherwise that community would fall apart. So when colleges are looking at students, they're looking at roles that need to be filled right. in their own community, regardless of what that role is, whether you need somebody to play the tuba or whether you need somebody who's very interested in stem cell research. They need those individuals that almost have star roles in that, in that capacity. They don't want a class of well-rounded individuals. They want a well-rounded right. class of stars. That's a really interesting way to think about it. You know, I, I, I think when we were applying, at least when I was in school, it was sort of if you were well-rounded and you were kind of engaged across the board, you were the athlete, maybe you wrote an article here or there for the school paper, um, you were, you know, involved in your dorm or in student government or, or uh, in some other capacity, you would be very attractive to a school kind of having, um, you know, your, a bunch of different pots on your stove. But now it seems like you need, I, I've heard this, the, the word used, uh, you need a hook or you need something that's your thing that, as you said, kind of helps them shape the well-rounded class, right? Because they're looking for kind of the all-star. They still want you to have, I think, all the other stuff too, <laughs> you know, but, but they want you to have that thing, whatever your thing may be. Right. I, you know, I dislike the term hook only because okay. it seems very superficial. Like it's, it's done just to get in what they want is a thriving community and that thriving community isn't going to, to exist unless they preempt it. And yes, they need to have that basic hurdle that they have to go over. So they have to have good grades and they have to high test scores and, and the other items they look for letters of recommendation activities. They have to have all those things, but they want to see what, what, what role is Susie going to play on our campus? Because it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is the role that Susie will play. And they want these roles filled. So how would you, if you're advising um, a student about um, helping them kind of not only think about what colleges they're interested in, but sort of how colleges would be looking at them. You know, I, I, I've heard this used, and maybe this is also kind of not not great terminology or um, a great way to think about it, but, you know, what what's their story? Um, you know, is that too, uh, when should students be thinking about that? And maybe the answer is kindergarten, but, you know, and how do they, how do they, how, how do you help them think about, about that when they're trying to present themselves to a college admissions office? I think it really starts in ninth grade to start. When, when I speak to my students, I ask them right. what brings them joy. What do they enjoy doing? Right. 
if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But it's the same thing. What do you, what is it that you like? And what do we do to help you achieve that goal? And so it's, it's more building towards them than creating it. It's, 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 it's about having them look inward and see what they like. Why is English your right. favorite subject? Why is it? Is it, is it that you enjoy reading? Is it that you enjoy the analysis? Is it that you enjoy the writing? What aspect of is it that, that you love? Maybe you want to be a screenwriter. Maybe you want to be a journalist. Let's start exploring that. And high school is the perfect opportunity to sort of delve into different areas and see what they like. And then to really go after that and, and, and develop that passion to the next level. So you really want to demonstrate to the college that you, you have an interest. Because I, I have heard teenagers say, I don't know what I want to do yet. But what you're saying is you may not know if you want to be a reporter or you want to be a lawyer or you want to, whatever you want to pursue, but more, what do you enjoy doing and how can we kind of help you develop that interest by having you think about different opportunities? I just see these years as a, as a great opportunity for kids to, to think about it, you know, not take a walk in the woods, but really be aware and, and self-awareness is, is a huge not talent, but but a way, a, a sense of maturity, of, of knowing yourself. Yes, the average 13 and 14-year-old doesn't know what they want to do. Maybe they don't want to be, you know, an astronaut, but maybe they really enjoy science. So let's delve deep into that. Does your school have a science research program? Are there programs that you would like to enter? Science contests. What courses are you taking that would help you taste that? and see if you are enjoying it. I have a a girl who's very much interested in forensics, but she doesn't like chemistry. But what she's really interested in is more of being a profiler, of being Clarice. Who isn't interested in that? I mean, I I need to find out where she's going. Is it, you know, John Jay? Or I mean, that just sounds... Yeah. Well, John Jay is definitely up at at the top of her list. But she actually, she could look into psychology, she could look into anthropology. And so the more you go down right. that rabbit hole, the more you learn about yourself. And, and you find, you know, you look up one thing, and you find five yeah. other things that you love. And in high school, you have that opportunity. Well, what, t- let's talk about the summer piece. Because, you know, I, I think back again, 30 years ago, it would be, you know, I'd I worked at the, at the ice cream shop or you, you know, I wasn't really thinking about my summers in terms of a way to expand my interests from, from what I was doing during the school year. But it seems like more kids are doing that. And I think that also colleges seem to offer in the summer programs, right. For kids to not only just test their interests, but to test the college in a way, right. In a way, the summer programs are, are, Right. Great for both, for the student and for the college. The student gets to experience life on the campus, what it's like to live in the dorm, what the food is like, you know, yeah, yeah. a minor thing to some, but a major thing to others. In addition to the, the way that things are taught. Now, obviously, the summer isn't a true representation because they don't have full professors teaching and the kids that are there in the summer won't necessarily be right. accepted to that school two years from now. But I think the summer is still about keeping a job. What, what colleges want are responsible right. young adults. If they see on your, on your activity page that you've had the same job for three or four years, that's a plus. You don't need to go and work in an orphanage. You need to show authenticity and that you are consistent, not flipping from one thing to right. the next okay. to the next. It's, it's more about, you know, I'm not going to quit on this. If you have a special interest, whether it's music, whether it's art, it's also an opportunity to maybe take a course in that, to maybe develop a possible portfolio. But these are all the options that the summer can give you. And who should, how would a student go about trying to figure out or a parent to help them? 
think having an honest conversation with your school counselor and saying, hey, I really love this subject. Is there anything that you can recommend? First of all, within the school's own curriculum, because all kids have some elective periods. Not everybody has to double up on math. Not everybody has to double up on science. Maybe they want to take uh, an AP music appreciation class or music theory class. I have one of my students is taking that now. And it not only helps them build a, a profile for a college, but it helps them explore something that they might really love. So I think speaking to the school counselor is a great resource. I think speaking to your parents. I think speaking to your parents' friends. Exploring what different careers that, you know, the Internet is obviously a great way. But I think just within your own community, your parents have enough friends doing different things that you can explore that and possibly shadow them over the summer? Well, you talked about, you talked about looking within what's already available at the school. So I I, want to get your, your take um, about course selection. And, you know, you, I guess all GPAs are not created equal. Um, It was interesting. uh, Our daughter had her uh, college weekend at school and they had deans from different um, colleges come and the admissions dean at Dartmouth was there. And I asked the question, how do you compare the A from school, school number one to the A grade from school number two? And his response was, we look at, to, you know, to where they are in the, you know, within their, their school, are, are they achieving as, um, as, you know, h- highly as they can? And I guess within that, he said the rigor of the curriculum. And so um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because you were talking about a, a student taking music theory and, you know, you're not, not everybody is going to be um, the STEM kid. And, um, and also, I guess I want to also touch on, is it better, is it better to have the four O GPA or the three, three, but you're all in advanced courses. And I asked actually someone at my daughter's school who said, well, you should be getting, the four in advanced courses, which of course, you know, is not exactly what I was, the, the, the uh, interp- or feedback I was looking for. But how, how do you advise people about that, about course selection and telling that story for a college admissions office? I think, first of all, there are five core courses that every student should take all four years, even though some schools say only we only need three years of a science and three years of math. The expectation is that you have those five core courses, which would be math, English, science, social studies, and a language. Now, let's say you have a child that is not, let's go with a STEM-oriented child. He doesn't want to take the extra humanities courses. For him, taking a history course is horrendous. And so in order to still maintain your five cores, that child will double up on math or double up on science. Maybe one year double up on math if he's dropping history and then another year dropping off, uh, doubling up on science. So that in effect, he's still providing five cores. He's doubling okay. up on one okay. for dropping the other. Same is true if you're a humanities child. Maybe you don't want to take AP Physics C. So you don't. So you take another humanities course whether it's an accelerated literature course or an accelerated history course to take the place of that. And so in that way, you're still demonstrating that you are being challenged because you're taking challenging courses, but you're taking challenging courses, hopefully in areas where you will will perform. Yeah. Right. Not everybody's going to do well in in a particular subject. I had a, 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 a student once who was um, very STEM, and he decided to take Gaelic literature <laughs> at the beginning of well, his senior was, year. It was translated was for him. I <laughs> he was, and so what ended up happening is we had to drop it because he was doing so poorly, and then he doubled up on English second semester of senior year, so it wouldn't affect his 
college acceptances. Um, so there are ways that we can work around it. But I think, first of all, uh, colleges are aware of this spectrum of intensity of different high schools. So since most schools have area reps, the college counselors that read Connecticut will understand the private schools versus the public schools versus the day schools, and they'll know which A counts the most. So they're aware of that. What the Dartmouth counselor or was speaking to was a secondary school report. So the secondary school report goes out from every high school. And in that secondary school report, they have a detailed explanation of the curriculum and of what the courses consist of. In addition to that, they provide a scatter plot. And the scatter plot shows the GPAs of all the students of that grade. And so any college admissions person will know where that particular applicant lies. Oh, wow. Okay. So even though schools say rank. that they don't rank you, they don't rank you by name, but it's very easy to figure out a GPA and seeing if the child is in the top 10% or in the bottom 10% of that class. Okay. And then, so, but with some schools having minimums, and maybe this is just my online research, it's not that they really have a minimum, it's just that they don't, you know, read uh, maybe applications that have a certain GPA. Should, Should people be really shooting for the GPA over the rigor or... I think it's a balance. I think it's a balance. I think your GPA is always important because it's a quantitative right. objective measure. But I think if you know that you are not a STEM kid, you're not going to go into the accelerated calc just to get it right. and then get a C in right. the course. So I think it, it you have to have a little bit of common sense when you're picking your courses that you are going to be taking a certain amount of challenging courses but not courses. Well, that I, you're really. speaking to someone who took uh, AP bio and got a C, but a one effort my, my senior year. <laughs> so, you know, I should have been advised. I should have had you, Maria, you know, guiding me um, 30 years ago. So we mentioned earlier, we talked about the, the schools that are test optional, the question of to submit or not to submit. Um, I'd love to get your, your thoughts about that. Um, it's a hot topic. Well, yeah. I think what's happened is um, it, when everybody is submitting, you have an accurate sample size, right? So you have kids that, let's say in the ACT, are getting in the low 20s, and you've got kids that are getting in the mid-30s. What's happening now with the test optional schools is the kid who would have gotten a 30, who would have been super right. happy with that 30, because it was in the 90-some percentile, is now no longer submitting because he's plummeted to maybe the 20th percentile because the only people that are submitting scores are the 34s, 35s, and 36s. And so you have to take that into account and be cognizant. Should I? No, probably not, especially if you're a very good student you have a great GPA, why would you bring down your average, your quantitative average by having a test score that is respective to the other ones that are submitted low? Even though it's not a low test score, in respect to the other ones, it is at the low end of the spectrum. So, but there are still some schools, the schools that, that, um, there are still some schools that want to see it, right? That want to see it. And, and they'll be, yeah. Some schools, some schools yeah. want. Georgetown wants. Georgia wants. Georgia's become very popular because their football team is doing very well. So they've become very popular. But that is not test optional. You must submit or you don't, you don't even get read. The Florida state schools are now all test required. So by the Florida state schools, I mean the public schools, University of Florida, Florida State, University of Central Florida, those schools are public. And so they now require testing. Do you think that it's going to, uh, 
the pendulum will swim back, swing back and we'll have testing be, be required again? Or do you think some of some schools have gone test optional you know, during COVID that it would be just hard to kind of put that genie back in the bottle? I think some schools have gone with, for instance, Tufts has decided that they're going to be test optional okay. for the next few years. And I think they're going to see how it goes. And I, I think it's it's a very good experiment to have to say that t- the schools that have always been test optional in the past, some of the, the NESCAC schools, they feel that the test scores are not great yeah. prognosticators of success in college. So they're very happy with being test optional. It's just harder to get through right. the applications. I think it's it's um, it's much harder when you have a large school that you have you know UCLA with 140,000 applications. Right. They have to have some sort of quantitative value in the application. Now they are test blind. All the UC schools are test blind. Yes, I've heard that. Is that new this year that they're all? I think it's pre-COVID because they felt testing was unfair to different socioeconomic groups. And so they decided to go test blind. So how, so, so with that, so it seems like unless you're in a position where you have a really strong standardized test score that was, is within whatever they're posting as their average, because their average is obviously, you know, almost a, inflate I mean, it's an inflated number right because Perfect. the kids are only unless you're in that really um elite group or for lack of a better description or a group of kids that are excellent at taking tests and get great scores in them it probably doesn't benefit you unless the school requires the testing obviously to to submit them correct and i guess correct. for kids whose gpa there might be a there might be a gray area there right if there's a kid whose gpa isn't as strong for their average but the but the test is within striking distance? Right. So it's it's a case-by-case basis. If, if you've got more Bs than As, but you have a pretty strong test score, I would submit this test score. All right. So you have, pretend like I'm a, a you know, a, student coming to see you. And I, I, you know, I know what I like, but I don't know if I want big or small or really what I'm looking for besides my interest in a college. How do you help a child or how do you advise a, a child to, or a teenager, I should say, to create their list? What is it? What does a strong list look like to you? To start, the strong list should have nine to 12 schools max. And that there should be a similarity. It shouldn't be like which of these right. is not like the others. That I think they should all be basically similar in feel. Every child should have a certain formula in their mind, and every formula is very individual with certain things that they consider as important. One part of it should be academics. Does it have the majors right. I like? I am 18 years old. I might not like these things when I'm 20. So when I work with a child, I say, I want you to go online and I want you to tell me three or four things that interest you at this school that you would like to study. I think it's important. And I want you to go look at the courses that are offered because when you major in something, you have to take eight right. to 10 courses in that major. And half of the time they go, what? Yeah. Go, yeah, that's how you graduate. So it's not just the core requirements. You want to make sure that there's enough there that you like. Another I I actually make them go through this exercise. Go look online. Tell me what clubs you would join. Tell me what activities you would join in this school. Are there any that you would join? You need to know because it's where you're going to be living. And it's going to be a part of your life. So I make them look and say, okay, I'm going to join this, and I'm going to join this, and I'm going to join this. And there should be a few things that they are excited about. The next thing is, let's look at the campus. I encourage them to look at the college campus online. And I encourage them to do this before they go and visit in person because they don't need to be visiting 20 colleges. They need to be focused on the ones that they like. And we have conversations. What is your ideal picture of college? Do you see yourself on a a very tranquil college campus in the woods? Do you see yourself in the middle of a city? 
And then there are right. obviously hybrids. Are there suburban schools that have a little bit of both? Do you see yourself going to football games on Saturday afternoon? Is that something that's important to you? And all of these things are part of that formula. The social life, the emotional life. If they're athletes, even if they're not going to be in a varsity sport, do you right. want to play club? Do you want to play intramurals? They can't just flip a switch and become different people when they go to college. They should have something that is a continuation of something they've done their whole lives. I work with athletes. I work with non-athletes. But with my athletes, and they say, I don't know if I want to continue doing this. I go, fine. But you're going right. to do it your freshman year because it's a security blanket. They, It's something that you are familiar with and that yeah. makes you happy. So you're going to do it. And in addition, you're going to have an yeah. immediate group of friends because everybody's in there for the same thing. So I make them go through this exercise of looking and encouraging them. I also like them to do virtual information sessions. This is a great opportunity to do these. And these came about after COVID or because of COVID, because no one could visit college campuses. That was a very sad year. Kids were making decisions without yeah. having seen the school. And you know, in that respect, social media was great because it gave them a really inside look at, at what college campuses were like. And so I encouraged them to do these virtual information sessions and to possibly reach out to the people that are going to be reading their applications and let them know of their interests, differentiating themselves from their peers, because at the end of the day, their peers are also their competition. You know, I was just thinking that, so the first step you would say to them, let's say they don't, they don't know if they want, I guess they could, they, obviously they'll, you know, would think through or talk through with you, you know, what their kind of vision is of the ideal experience. But if they're really not sure, the first step, as you said, is really to go, go online, do the virtual tour, and then do that deep dive on the site yeah. about, you know, do they have the, the, the courses that I'm interested in or the majors that I'm interested in or What's the social life like? Do they have a Greek life or not? Depending if you think you might be interested in that. Um, and then would do you recommend that they go to look at maybe a city school and then a suburban, even if there's one maybe near them that they might not even be interested in, but just to get a meal for that? Yeah, yeah definitely. You know, it's, it's great to do um, a loop, for instance. If, if the child thinks, oh, maybe I want to go south, Okay, so a great loop would be Georgetown, UVA, right. and University of Richmond. So you have small, medium, large. You can do the same thing in the Boston area. You can see BC, you can see BU, you can see Williams, you can see Brown. I, I always think it's great to, yeah. to have a sampling and get some feedback. And what I think most important is open communication always. What did you like about it? Well, you know, I didn't like the school. I understand. But what did you like about it? And more importantly, Leslie, yeah. what didn't you like about it? Because it's so much easier for them to say, you know, the dorms were awful. I just didn't like it. I didn't like how I felt when I was there. And that gut feeling, yeah. we have to listen to it. It's super important because aesthetics is part of yep. the equation oh, for as well. Sure. How, how about, I mean, so when they're, they, they're kind of doing their, their online research and they find the, the schools that they are gravitating towards. How can kids um, navigate that and helping to create their, their list? Well, all schools have a platform and there are different platforms for different schools. It used to be Naviance and now other schools have SCORE, they have Maya Learning, they have different ways and it's how the high school sends their information to the colleges. So the student is responsible for their essays and their common app, or in the case of Georgetown, the Georgetown app, or in the case of the UCs, the UC app. But those are very clear. That's the student's responsibility. The high school's responsibility is to send their transcript, their letters of recommendation, and the secondary school report, which gives you that scatter plot with where your kid is and an explanation of the curriculum in depth. So 
part of the the use of this platform is that it also keeps track of where past students from your school have gotten in and with what scores and with what grades. So it is basically an X, Y axis. One is the GPA, one is the testing, and it lets you know how many got in. So it is a scatter plot and it tells you with colors how many got in, how many got any D, how many got any A, how many got in regular, how many kids were waitlisted. So it gives the kids an immediate, immediate feedback on, okay, here's where I am. And there's a little circle to where yeah. you are as a student. And these are what's around me. Is it green? Is it red? And and that way they get a, a very good idea of whether it's worth it. Now, when, when did that start? We didn't have that resource when... I mean, that sounds great. <laughs> no. I mean, yeah. We didn't, we didn't have that. No, but we yeah. had paper applications. I don't know. I think that was the role of the high school counselor back then. But again, kids were yeah. applying to five schools. They're not applying yeah. to 15. And there weren't that many kids applying. Not everybody applied to college 30, 40 years ago. Okay. So now the student has their list, right? They've looked online. They've They've come up with a you know, their checklist of schools that they think have the, the academics they're looking for and the extracurriculars and sort of the social life components or lo- geographic location, what they, they're, they're going to do, they've scheduled a visit. What should they do to prepare for that visit? And what should they do when they're on campus? What are kind of your, your recommend? And then even as a follow-up after, after the fact. Right. I think it's really important to preview that visit. You're going there for a reason. Let's recall what those reasons are. Possibly, let's say, I have a girl who's very much into classics. So I recommend that she email the classics, one of the classics professors and meet with them when she was on campus. Yep. And she did. Well, we do the same thing if you're a performer. We do the same thing if you had one young man who was very much into politics and I had him email the head of the politics right. department and say, I'm really interested in this because you want to know if it's exactly what you're buying. At the end of the day, the student right. is still a consumer. It's, you know, they have choices. Um, I would know something so that I'm able to ask some questions. When you're on the visit, it's not just about the information session. I encourage students to stay on campus. I encourage them to go to those areas. If you're an athlete, I hope you go visit the coach. If you're into theater, I hope you go to the theater department. You need to really see who these people are because it's going to be up to you whether you apply or not. What about the re- the regional reps? Are they are they in the admissions office usually when you go and should you seek them out when you're there? Yeah, usually. So if I would not, I think it's presumptuous to write them before. I had a young man say, should I write him? I think it's presumptuous to write the rep who's busy to say, oh, I'm coming because it gives off a very entitled air. But I would definitely stop by admissions and say, oh, I'm here. I go to high school in XYZ. Would you know, is is a person that's in charge of my area here? I would love to be able to say hello. Not not intrusive, but opportunistic. And then I would try to follow up with either the person that gave the information session, the professor, coach that I met with, expressing my interest, if you are interested, because they will remember that. But the area rep is important because they're going to be bombarded with a lot of applications from your area, and it might be nice that they recognize your name. How do you know if a school offers interviews or was that something you can find out on their website or ask the rep? Or? That's, that's, a, that's available on the website. Most small schools, schools under 5,000 or 5,000 or so, do offer interviews. The schools in the South, some of the NESCAC schools, will offer interviews on campus. In the South, they start in the late summer and early fall. In the North, mostly in the early fall. And you try to schedule it. The larger schools, state schools usually don't give interviews. Some do. Uh, 
the Ivies give interviews, but those are only generated after you have applied. And those interviews are done by alumni. So it's not done on the campus. They're done by regional alumni schools committees. So do you only, for the Ivies, um, not that I anticipate anyone in my family necessarily applying to any of them, but um, but if you are, is that something, do they invite you to an interview based on a, a, a look at your application or is that offered to everybody? They, they really try. I think schools that, whether it's the Ivies, whether it's Duke, whether it's Northwestern, WashU, they try to accommodate every applicant. It's not like they say, oh, this kid's no good. I'm not going to bother. They try to accommodate every applicant. They're very good about that. But it's alumni driven. It's not It's not admissions. And then the alumni has to fill out a form giving the admissions their view on the applicant. Um, I have a friend who is the rep for, um, for her area of Ohio for Harvard. And she just can't get over how accomplished these kids are that are applying, that she's interviewing. And then She's submitting their, the, her notes on them. And, and in many cases, they're not getting in just because of the numbers. They're just incredibly qualified. So it's just a very, as we mentioned, yeah. It's become a numbers game, Leslie. And it's, and it's kind of sad because it, it's sad that kids feel like only a few schools will yeah. make their dreams come true. And what I've learned through this, and, and, and I've been lucky, but what I've learned is that no matter where they go to school, 99% yeah. of them are super happy with their school one, you know, one month in, two months in. They're like, oh, this is, how could I have even thought about going somewhere else? So how, let's talk about that a little bit, because I, I have heard people say, well, they're going to go to this school and then they're going to transfer after their first year because it's easier to get in as a sophomore. I mean, do you see that as a, a viable or positive strategy? I guess it might depend on the, a bunch of factors. But I think it did. You know, I have worked in 20 some years, I've worked with two kids that, that that has happened. But we knew from the start that they were not going to get into the schools of their choice. And so it was... One is it, it was decided long before. It wasn't like, oh, I didn't get in and this is what I'm going to, so this is all I'm left with. It was like, all right, so I goofed up and this is the best that I can do. Will you help me transfer right. after okay. a year? And yes, but that was, that was the plan all along. I think it's, it's, if it's the plan from the, from the onset, it's easier. I think it's very sad to to be unhappy with where you're going to school and have one foot in the door yeah. and one foot it's out. Just, it's hard for you to really kind of dive in. And embrace right. where yeah. you are. Right. But, but, but along those same lines, when you, um, from a, quote, strategy perspective, because you'll hear people say, did you, you know, the, the EDEA and regular, will you just give a quick description of those three and, and maybe your opinion about, about that? These, these did not exist. 30 years ago. So um, early decision is a binding contract. So if you apply early decision to a school and you get in, you must attend. So if you are looking at an ED school, why would you do it? A couple of reasons. The best reason is your chances of getting right. in are doubled, at times even tripled. Why? Because Everybody benefits the school, the college benefits because they have a committed member to their class. So it helps their yield. The student benefits because it's easier for him to get in and he'll know right. by December. And a lot of that stress is removed. So ED has those as positives. What's the one negative with ED? You don't get a finance, you don't get to decide on which is the best financial package you can get. So for the kids that are looking at possibly having some financial aid, it's not the best thing. For this reason, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale 
have what's called restricted early action. So does Stanford. And what that means is you can apply early, you can find out early, you're restricted because you cannot apply anywhere else, but you don't have to go. Okay. Oh, that's so because they want to give that student the, the flexibility. To, yeah. The opportunity. Right. Right. So that's Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and Stanford. However, Stanford's numbers for restricted early action are no better than their numbers for regular decision. So you oh, don't get that bump. Okay. The other school is a bit of a bump, but not as much as an ED. An ED really, um, a school like, let's say, Northwestern. Northwestern's ED is 18%, 16%. But their regular decision yeah. is single digits. So it's, it's a commitment that, that has to be made. Now, not, not all schools have ED. And some schools have an ED1. The application is due November 1st, and you hear by December. And they have an ED2. So the application is due by January 1st, and you hear in February. So that, that, those are usually the smaller schools like the smaller NESCACs and some schools in California as well. And I guess, you know, what I've, what I have heard again, I have, I'm not, you know, our daughter's just dipping her toe or maybe has one foot in the pool at this point, or hopefully two in the, in this college process that um, you sort of, you need to be careful about how you use your ED, right? Because if you go for that reach in the ED, right. And it may be, a, a, you're really hanging on to the branch there, you know, it could, hurt your, the numbers, right, for the one that might be more on your target list. So that's part of the conversation, right, that you... Totally. I mean, that's, that's an excellent point. So you have to ED a school that, that is kind of a reach, but not unrealistic. Right. Just because the, the, the chances are twice as good does not mean that you're the best candidate. You have to think about, are they, are they a good candidate for you? What do, what do the numbers look like on that Maya Naviance report? Right. Are there people around your area that got in ED? And if the, the answer is no, then we move on to a different school where you might have a better chance, which is still a reach. Yeah. And so, yeah, that that is important to not, to not throw away an ED because ED there's an ED one for most schools have ED one but only a few schools have ED2. But what happens is if the acceptance rate for ED1 is hovering around 15%, Leslie, 85% of those kids did not get in. Yeah. And now they're flooding the ED2 apps and the regular decision apps. And it becomes, so an ED2 is much more competitive than an ED1. So for that reason, you don't reach too high on an ED1. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. In that same college weekend I mentioned at, at, at uh, my daughter's school, the dean of admission from uh, um, SMU was also there. And she said they take 95% of their ED applicants. Wow. Well. So because they said they know that those are students that are that that are committed to their school and they've had great success with, with those types of students who are, who know that SMU is the place for them. And they said in their EA round, it's, they take 50% of their EA applicants. And then the, and then it just, it must be significantly less obviously in regular because um, so that's a school where you'd really want to jump in. And By the way, when you see those uh, applicate uh, acceptance rates, that's an aggregate. Be aware that if they say that Harvard's acceptance rate is 5%, that's an aggregate of their early decision and their regular decision. That means their right. regular decision is much lower than 5%. Right. Oh, right. Because it's not just the regular decision that they're giving you. They're giving you both numbers together. Most, A lot of schools logistically it makes sense to take the ED candidate 
because that's a guaranteed student. It's a guaranteed seat filled. Yep. It's 100% yield. Yep. And who doesn't want that? Yep. So we've talked about the grades being an important piece, obviously. Probably, I mean... Was the, not to say the most important piece, but it really is the is the qualifier, right? And then right. Um, kids sort of developing their interests and telling their stories, um, and demonstrating that through the activities that they do both at school and during the summers. What about the application essays? Very important. Very important. I was speaking with a while back uh, the head of admissions at a, at an elite school. And she described the application as the student's skeleton and the essay as their soul. Wow. I thought that was perfect because the application essay gives you a chance to bear yourself to that admissions class. They're seeing everything is very quantifiable, right? It's the GPA, it's the test scores, it's the activities. It's something that they can compare easily against everyone else. But your essay is the most individual thing that you can bring. In my mind, when I look at essays, my brother's an architect, and he said when he used to grade projects, 50% of it he would assign to the concept, to the idea. And the other 50% would be to the execution. And that's how I view essays when I'm reviewing them. 50% has to be, it has to touch me. It has to be authentic. It's not about, uh, it's about a singular experience, hopefully, or something that has really defined you. And it's not, some parents want it to be a list of all the accomplishments. That's a resume. That's yeah. not an essay. And, you know, I remember sitting in many a, a school listening to eighth grade speeches. And the worst eighth grade speeches were in first grade, in second yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the best were when a student gave just an anecdotal experience that they yeah. had and how it had affected them, whether it was with a teacher, with another child, or, but that's what you remember walking from those speeches. And so those essays, and I'm talking at this point about the main essay, which used to be our personal statement, is something that's very individual. And I believe this should be worked on very, very diligently, not robotically, but you have to go back to it and you have to go back to it. The, then there are other essays. Many schools have what are known as supplemental essays. Different schools have different number of essays. Some have five. <laughs> some um, have, they they want to make sure you really want to go there, right? I mean, <laughs> some, yeah, some have none. And so what I would tell you is those are school-specific essays. They want to know how you spent your summer. They want to know what's important to you, what activity is important to you. When we write those essays, I try to relate an activity that the student is doing now, and I and I serve them on a silver platter what they will be doing at their school. Right. Because I want them to have that image of what that student, what role he'll be playing in that school. So there, those supplementals are equally important. They might say, what is it about this school that you love? Well, you know what? That's when that research that you did on that school comes into play. Right. Because you know, what is it that I liked? I like these clubs. I like like these courses. I like these professors. And you tell them really why you want to go. It's not about location. It's not real estate. It's not because I want to be here. It's because this community offers me the opportunity to get to where I want to be. And this is why. We don't talk about the Starbucks in the student center is what you're saying. Kind of more or the phenomenal food court. Yeah, exactly. So your college, we talked about your college counselors um, or that every school really has a college counselor. There might be some that 
have more students than others or have a, have a, have a, um, have more of a, um, personal touch or one-on-one than, than some other schools. But what would be your kind of advice to, to a student on how best to use their, their college counselor? I think they're a great, great resource. And students sometimes don't give them enough credit. But I think, I think they should open themselves up selfishly because those college counselors are going to be writing a recommendation about them. Right, right. So they better know who you are and what you want and your attributes. Make it super clear who you are and get to know them. I think they can, they, they not only represent the institution where you're coming from, but they also represent you. And so I think they're, they're a great resource for helping you choose summer stuff, but more than anything, for being able to portray you in your best possible light. I didn't even, I didn't think of it that way. You're, you're right that they are your kind of your advocate. So maybe you go in there every once in a while with a cup of coffee and chat with them during your free period, right? If that's yeah. a, if yeah. they're going to be the person advocating for you. Right. And what about, um, you know, the relationships that those college counselors have with certain schools? I know that's been tricky, particularly in the last couple of years, um, with there being various issues with the college admissions. Um, although I do understand Lori Laughlin, what she did for USC, it's an incredible, <laughs> incredible place. But do you think that, um, I mean, is that also a strategy to say, you know, I know my high school sends a lot of kids to Notre Dame and I, maybe I should talk to my college counselor about that versus Definitely. another yeah. school. Right. And if, if you know certain school, you know, your college counselor can be a great resource of where your high school sends kids and right. maybe put a school on your list that you hadn't considered, but that she has some firsthand knowledge for kids that have been successful there, which will also right. help you get in. Yep. And again, in representing you to that school, because at the end of the day, they have to place that whole class. Yep. So the, the more information you can give your co- college counselor about you to help them help you, the better off you are. And do you think that certain colleges, are, are they limited or in their mind, um, do they kind of restrict, do you think, accepting a certain number of kids from a certain school? For example, think, if you know that there are other kids in your class that are applying to that same school and they're going to be on that standard graph, yeah, you should maybe not. You should be aware. It's yeah. part of the strategy. If there are three schools that you're equally in love with, but 10 kids are applying to two of them, guess what? I, right. I would steer away from it because, and I would, you know, I try never, I, I try to tell my kids never to discuss what they're thinking for right. the same reason. Well, that's, that's good. That's good advice too. So I. Good. What's that? Discretion. Yeah. Good. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So I've had you, we've, we've been chatting now, Naria, for an hour and almost four minutes. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, although I could talk to you all afternoon, as, as you know, because this is a hot topic for my, for my family right now, having our daughter begin to go through this process, or I guess, I guess she's kind of in it now. What is your, I mean, do you have any sort of parting wisdom for, for students and, and parents as they're, you know, going through the process? I think that they have to remember that college isn't the destination. College is the vehicle that takes you to your destination. Right. And that there are a lot of vehicles out there that they can try out. And this is about having the opportunity to empower your student to be successful once they get there. I had a mom tell me once after her child got in ED, oh, it's over. No. Right, right. It's just begun. <laughs> I understand like her. I understand that mom. Yep. <laughs> it's in, and, and at the end of the day, the child student is still, you want, you want your child to be an empowered consumer. Right. And realize that they have many choices. They're not a pawn in this. They're still making decisions. And the more they learn about where they want to go to school, 
the more they learn about themselves, yeah. the more successful they'll be. And it, it's not about picking the perfect school based on the rankings. It's the perfect school for you. Right. So that's that's what I would tell them. It's a vehicle. They're going to use it. Hopefully, they'll have a wonderful ride in that car, whatever <laughs> that car may be. But um, you know, I think that's I think that's what they have to remember that they still have that power that it's not taken away from them because I think it gets a little scary for these kids thinking I'll never get in. Sure, right. they'll get in, and just you know choose wisely. And that is a part of it, right? Is that you're, you know, you're looking at schools, you're choosing, or you're, you hope to choose a school and the schools are choosing you. So it's, it's almost, it's a, it's finding that, that fit or that, that, that matchup. Right. Right. And, and you want, you don't want necessarily buy the label as, as women, we've all bought shoes that are very pretty and can't deal with. Right. Yeah. So you want, you want something I find the most successful of my students are places that make them happy because if you're happy, you will be successful. And so you want to find your happy place. Happy place might not necessarily be the brand name. Yeah. Be, you know, just a place that you really love. And I think the more they learn about the school, the more they fall in love with it, which is good. For sure. Well, Naria, I, I, I wish I could go back in a, in a time machine and have you, um, have Maya, first of all, um, have someone advising me not to take an advanced science class my senior year and have you guiding, guiding me through the process um, because um, you're just so incredibly knowledgeable and your, um, your approach and uh, being so sensitive and thoughtful about finding the right place for um, for your students is just um, so important. So it's been so great to chat with you today to get a real understanding of the landscape because it is it is a stressful you know process. But um, talking to you and learning a lot more about it, um, I know will make certainly has made me a lot less anxious, and I know it will make people that are listening too. So Leslie, it's been a pleasure. You are you are quite good at what you do yeah. and asking questions. And it's been a wonderful conversation. We can do this all day, as you say. Well, maybe we'll have you back. Maybe after <laughs> our daughter goes through it, we'll, we can do a forensic and then have a part two. So, uh, but Naria, thank welcome. you so much. Bye-bye. Um, um, Take care. A huge thanks again to Naria Rupert for joining us on the interview. I hope you enjoyed our chat. And if you did enjoy the show, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Instagram at The Interview with Leslie Heaney. A new podcast is released every Wednesday. But until then, this is Leslie, and don't forget to join The Interview. The Interview.